Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you on this Lord's Day. And I want to say thank you for worshiping the Lord through song with your whole heart. And now let's worship through the word, shall we? If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to take your listening outline from your worship guide, get a pen in hand, or go to our app on your mobile device and hit the notes button. You can access the notes there. And open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're going to look at chapters 5, 6, and 7 in a message I've entitled, Do You See It on Your Outline? The Most Famous Sermon of Jesus, a Discipleship Manual in brief. Now, why are we looking at the Gospel of Matthew? Well, it's because it's a part of our chapter a day readings. And if you're not in on those yet, let me just invite you to join hundreds and hundreds of us who are abiding in God's Word a chapter a day. Just text the word chapter to 22828. You'll be able to sign up. And in the morning, about five o'clock, you'll get a reminder of what the chapter of the day is and a few words to help you understand and apply it. And as we're preparing to hear the word here in the worship center, let me just say a warm welcome to everybody in our contemporary service. I'm really glad you're here this morning, as well as everyone who's joining us on TV and online. You know, this week I've been thinking about famous sermons, famous sermons. Have you ever thought about all the sermons or messages you've heard in your life? Now, if you're new to church, you may not have heard just an awful, awful lot of them. But if you grew up in church, I bet you've heard more sermons than you can remember. Isn't that true? I think that's true for all of us. But maybe, maybe among those messages, there's one that stands out. Maybe God used it in a significant way in your life. And so that message, or at least a part of it, it's always going to be famous to you because of the way God used it in your life. But when you think beyond your own personal experience to just famous sermons or Sunday messages in human history, what are the ones that might stand out? I'm sure, depending on who you talk to, you would come up with a different list. But students of American history, I think, would be drawn to one for sure. It was delivered in the summer of 1751. The summer of 1751 in Northampton, Massachusetts, and then later in Connecticut, and perhaps even beyond that, and it was a message that became the flame that lit what became known as the first great awakening, the first great spiritual awakening that occurred in the American colonies. 1751, this message was preached. The fellow who preached it was a guy named Jonathan Edwards. And do you know the name of the message? I bet some of you do. It was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was a powerful, vivid message about our need for a Savior. And at the end, it pointed us to faith in Christ. And God just used that in an extraordinary way. 
You know, another famous message that came to mind for me this week, and it's actually one you can still hear if you search it out online. It was probably the most famous sermon in the South between 1930 and 1960. Um, it was preached by a pastor named R.G. Lee, who was the pastor of the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And he is said to have preached this message over 1,200 times across the South during those years. I think after 1,200 times, you might could get it right. What do you think? It was a message called Payday Someday. And as it begins, it's from the Old Testament, he describes the main characters in the sermon, Naboth and Jezebel and Ahab, the king of Israel. And he had nothing if he didn't have vivid language to describe that evil king. He said, Ahab was that vile human that squatted on the throne of his nation, the worst of Israel's kings. But you know, as famous as sinners in the hands and payday someday have been, they pale in comparison to what I believe is without controversy the most famous sermon in human history. And that is the sermon of Jesus recorded in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven. We typically know it as the Sermon on the Mount. So this morning, I want us to take a look at that sermon because it is, it's really a, a discipleship manual in brief. Now, it's not the whole manual. The whole discipleship manual is the Bible. And so you have to read all of the manual to be fully formed as a disciple. But if you want a distillation, if you want a synopsis, if you want a praises, if you want a summary of what it means to follow Jesus, then you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So here's what I hope we'll do over the next few moments. Uh, we're not going to have time, of course, to cover the entirety of three chapters. So I want us to cover the beginning. I want us to summarize the middle. And then I want us to cover the end. And then I want to leave you a challenge for you and yours in your home today and this week. Are you ready? Let's look at the scripture together. Here's what it says. In chapter 5, verse 1. Matthew's gospel says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying. So right off the bat with those introductory words, I want you to notice something important. Write it in on your outline. Here it is. It is that there is a difference between being part of the crowd, being part of the crowd and being a disciple of Jesus. Do you see that? 
in, those, in that first verse, it says, Jesus saw the crowds. They were great multitudes. But from the crowds, there was a smaller group, and that smaller group was his disciples. So now, what does that word disciple mean? Write it in on your outline. Here's what the word literally means. The key idea in the word disciple is to be a learner, a learner. One who is instructed, one who is taught, one who follows the commandments and teachings of the one whom they confess as Lord. And so let me just apply this introductory truth in this way. You know, at Ingleside on any given Sunday, especially during the heart of the school year, there'll be a large crowd that gathers. Oh, it'll depend on the Sunday, but it'll be 1,500 to 2,000 folks who, who gather on our campus. But then if you add the crowd who's watching online, it'll be a few hundred more. And if you add the crowd that's watching on TV, the Nielsen people say it's about 10,000 folks in that crowd every Sunday. And I am really, really grateful that by God's grace, He's drawn a crowd to the gospel and to the teaching of his word. But now listen, can I say to you, whether you're in the room or watching online or watching on TV, it's not enough to be part of the crowd. There's a difference between being part of the crowd and being a disciple, and it involves commitment to being a follower a learner, a disciple of Jesus. And can I just say as glad we are, as glad as we are that the crowd is significant, guess what the goal is? Our goal is not just to have an audience, but it's to turn the audience into an army an army of Christian soldiers. It's intended to turn the crowd into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That was his purpose. It's clear uh, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's our purpose too. That's the reason why we say over and over again, we're clear about our mission. Do you see it on your outline? Our mission at Ingleside is to make disciples. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. You know, it's easy to remember. Uh, you know what various groups and companies make, don't you? You help me. McDonald's makes what? Yeah, that was a grunt. I didn't quite get that. You must not go there. McDonald's makes what? Yeah. And Papa John's makes what? And Michelin makes what? Yeah. And Ingleside makes what? That's it, disciples. We are intent on making disciples for the glory of God. That'll please the Lord. And I just have to ask, have you taken the step yet from being part of the crowd to a commitment to Christ? And are you a disciple who's learning and growing and developing and following? Oh, that's the Lord's desire for you. Now read with me. I'd love for everyone to read aloud with me then the first words of the sermon. They begin in verse 3. It begins with blessed. 
And it goes through verse 12. We're going to read it aloud here in the worship room. Everybody in the contemporary service, let's read these verses together. This is the way Jesus began that most famous sermon. Are you ready? Let's read it aloud. Here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Write it in now on your outline. What are we learning in, that int in those introductory words? Right off the bat, Jesus is saying in a poetic, captivating way that disciples learn to live in a way that will receive God's blessing. Disciples learn to live in a way that will receive God's blessing. That word that appears nine times in that opening, the word blessed, the Greek word makarios, can be translated blessed or happy or in right relationship with God. And so Jesus sort of just captures the attention of the audience by saying, here's the way to live a blessed life. And the way he framed it was counterintuitive. I mean, notice how he begins. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, when he first said blessed are the poor, immediately people said, that can't be right. Nobody wants to be poor. All of us want to be rich. None of us want poverty. And Jesus used that turn of phrase to say, but no, wait. It's the person who sees and knows their spiritual need and is willing to admit that need who will inherit the kingdom of God. Similarly, the second one, he says, blessed are those who mourn and everybody responded immediately. Well, nobody wants the season of mourning in their life. Everybody wants the season of joy in their life. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, but, but those who see the seriousness of their sin and mourn and grieve the times they have disobeyed God, that repentance will lead to joy. It will lead to gladness. There's some more counterintuitive things. He says, blessed are the meek. It means blessed are the gentle, blessed are the humble. And in his day, just like in ours, the culture says, oh, no, it's the aggressive, it's the assertive, it's the self-promoting one who's going to succeed. And Jesus says, that's the way of the world. 
I'm calling you to live a deeper, better, quieter, gentler, more humble life. The next one's the same way. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And everybody goes, Is that, can that be right? Nobody wants to be hungry. Nobody wants to be thirsty. Everybody wants to be well-fed. Everybody wants to have plenty of water to slake their thirst. And Jesus said, oh, no, but you're going to be really blessed and happy deep within your soul when you have a hunger and thirst for righteousness produced by my spirit because you're going to be satisfied in living a life in right relationship with me. And then it sort of turns a corner. He says, blessed are the merciful. Don't be harsh. Don't be vindictive. Don't be vengeful. Show some mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the troublemakers. And then he finishes up by saying, and this is the most counterintuitive of all. He said, no, you know what? You're going to really be blessed. You're going to really have deep happiness of soul when the Christ in you calls for the opposition of the world and you experience opposition, insult, persecution, etc. He says, just know when that comes, you'll be blessed. Now, I want to make sure I say something here. Did you notice verse 11? He says, blessed are other, when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you. Why? He says, the things they say are falsely and they are on his account. He doesn't say, blessed are you when people don't like you because you're a jerk. Did you get that? He doesn't say, blessed are you for being obnoxious. He doesn't say, blessed are you for being prickly and porcupinish and hard to get along with and a nitpicker and a criticizer. No. But he says, if because you follow me and stand for the things I stand for, the world persecutes you, then be happy about it. Because your rewards are going to be great in heaven. That's how you live a blessed life. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I think that's a pretty good opening for a sermon. What do you think? I think Jesus hit it on the head right there at the start. Well, now read the next few verses with me, if you would, verses 13 through 16. Let's read them aloud again. Some of you are saying, why are we reading this aloud? You know, I was reading uh, in one of the pastoral epistles where Paul said to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. There's something good when we read the Scripture aloud in public together. Let's, let's read again, 13 through 16. Are you ready? Here we go. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, 
Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What are we learning here? Write it in on your outline. We're learning that the danger for disciples, Jesus begins by saying, here's the way to be blessed as a disciple. And now here he's telling us what the danger is. The danger for disciples, write it in, is to lose or to hide our distinctiveness from the world. Now, there's a lot of truth that can come out of these two metaphors of salt and light, but I'm convinced that this is the main message. Jesus is saying, in his day, salt was used primarily as a preservative of meat, a preservative, and salt preserves by drawing moisture out of the meat that it preserves. But now, what if the salt you're using got contaminated with just a bunch of dirt and sand? What if, what if instead of being all salt, it was 90% salt and 10% sand or 80% salt or 50% salt and 50% sand? When the salt becomes contaminated by other things, guess what it loses? It loses its saltiness, it loses its preservative power, it loses its flavoring power. And so what does Jesus say? If the salt has lost its taste, that's not because salt can chemically lose its taste, it's because it's lost its taste by being contaminated by other things. He says then the salt's not accomplishing its purpose anymore. Then he shifts the metaphor. He says, you're the light of the world. And he says, whenever you're light, you don't put a light under a basket. You put a light on a stand so that the light can dispel the darkness. So what is he saying? He's saying, don't hide your light. So now, don't you see the practicality of this? Jesus says you and I are living in the world and we're going to be distinct from the world. And so the greatest danger is to allow our lives to be compromised, contaminated, like salt losing its saltiness, or to simply, when we're in the world, to turn down our light and hide it so that no one will notice our distinctiveness and no one will take offense. Whenever I um, was meditating on this this week, my um, mind went back to a little song that I learned. I bet you learned too. I learned it when I was a kid in Sunday school or vacation Bible school. You know the song? This is the light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a bushel, no, I'm going to let it shine. Won't let Satan blow it out, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine all over the world, I'm going to let it shine. So now watch this church family. 
as you and I become disciples, we're going to be distinct from the world. We're going to see the world differently. We're going to have different values. We're going to have different priorities. We're going to have different loves. We're going to arrange our relationships differently. And the danger is going to be when we feel the pressure of the world to lose our saltiness or to turn down our light. And I want to say, stay salty and let your little light shine. Read the next section with me, 17 through 20. Let's read it together. Here we go. It begins, do not think. You ready? Here we go. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what are we learning here? Write it in. Number four, Jesus is teaching us that disciples, his followers, value all of the scripture, all of the scripture, and learn to interpret the Old Testament in light of Jesus and the New Testament. He doesn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. He comes to fulfill them. And so what have we learned? The new uh, is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. And that's the reason why we read all of the Bible. It's not time to unhitch our theology from any portion of the Bible. We're to read it all and learn from it all. Now look at number five. In the body of the Sermon on the Mount then, after that introduction, I want you to see all the topics that Jesus addresses. I've just gone through and listed them here for us. Look, look. he talks about murder and anger. He talks about adultery and lust. He talks about marriage and divorce, oaths and honesty, retaliation and payback, loving neighbors and enemies. He talks about doing our religious practice for the praise of men. And specifically, he talks about giving and praying and fasting. He talks about treasure and money. He talks about anxiety and its antidote. It talks about judging others, wisdom in our witness, our prayers and God's response. And then it sort of lands on the golden rule. Let's read it aloud. It's Matthew 7, 12. It says, so whatever you wish. Ready? Let's read it together. Here we go. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. He's saying, look, th this is personal. You can put it into practice. It's forward-leaning. It is active. You do to others, love them like you want to be loved. That's, that's so much of the law and the prophets. Now, there's so much we could take from this, but let me just say, I know that at this season of the year, some of you are trying to decide whether Ingleside might be a church home for you. Some of you are about to move off to college or work or somewhere else, and you're going to be choosing a new church. 
And as I look at the variety of the topics that Jesus covered just in the Sermon on the Mount, it makes me want to say, make sure that the church you choose teaches all of the Bible, not just some of the Bible, but that it teaches the whole counsel of God. You see, if we're not careful, we'll just focus on the portions of Scripture that we like or positive or encouraging or don't challenge us or that we're familiar with already. Oh, no. The teaching of Jesus covers all of life, and so we ought to embrace it all. Okay, let's go then to the end of the sermon, and uh, let's read verses 13 through 23. Are you ready? This is how it wraps up. It begins, enter by the narrow gate. Are you still reading with me? Let's read aloud. Here we go. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you'll recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what are we learning here? As Jesus wraps up the message, he says, his disciples learn to be discerning. Learn to be discerning. To see the difference between the narrow way and the broad way. To see the difference between false prophets and true prophets. To see the difference between genuine believers and those who simply say that they are. You see, it's true today what was true back then. Spiritual naivete and spiritual gullibility is no virtue. We are to be discerning. And then here's the last paragraph of the sermon, and with this we complete it. Read with me verses 24 through 29. Are you ready? Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man 
who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So what's our last lesson today? That disciples don't merely hear Jesus' words, but empowered by the Spirit, we put them into practice. We actually do them. So now, here's my challenge as we wrap up today. Um, yesterday evening, just after supper, I sat down at my desk and I thought, I need to hear this sermon myself. And so I opened my Bible, I was just sitting by myself and I read it aloud. Chapters five, six, and seven aloud all at one sitting. You know how long it takes to do that? If, if, if you just read at a normal pace like you were speaking, it took me 14 minutes and 55 seconds, 15 minutes. And man, as I just read those words aloud, it was like I could just hear the Lord speaking to me. And some of those steps of obedience he was calling me to. So this mask, sometime between now and next Sunday, sometime today if possible, I wanna ask you to give the Lord 15 minutes to capture your attention through the most famous sermon he ever preached. I don't want you to just read it. I want you to read it out loud. Some of you say, Pastor, I, I, I struggle with reading sometimes. Well, do this. Go to the app, the chapter a day hyperlink, ESV.org, ESV and it will read it aloud to you. And as it reads it aloud to you, you join in it. And if you like a man's voice, it'll read in a man's voice. If you like a woman's voice, it'll read in a woman's voice. If you like a Welsh or Gaelic accent, Kristen Getty will read it to you. But listen to the whole sermon of Jesus. And then say, oh Lord Jesus, by your grace, I wanna be your disciple and I wanna put into practice what you've taught me. Give me grace to do that. Let's pray together. Father, that's our heart's desire today to be your disciple. I know, Lord, that we're not saved by our effort. We're saved by your grace, free, given to all who believe. And yet, oh Lord, as we believe, you call us to obedience, to actually do and be what you've called us to be. So, Lord, would that occur? I'm praying that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people all over our church and our community will read aloud your most famous sermon 
and take it to heart. Grant that that would occur and that your Holy Spirit would bring revival and renewal to each of us. Lord, I thank you that our hope is not in this world, but our hope is in Christ. I thank you that our hope reaches beyond the grave all the way to heaven. And so encourage us by the hope we have in Christ today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.